people might know the phrase winging it and that's what they think I do but actually in the theatre we have the wings a bit at the side of the stage and this is an old-fashioned theatre term the winging it person is in the wings trying to learn the lines at the last minute or putting their head in the wings asking the stage manager what's the script what's the script so they're in a state of fear because they know they should have learned the lines there's only one version of the script and they haven't done it the other people have and all they're doing is it's a state of panic. I should have learned the lines. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Whereas improv, we go, there is no script. We are here. We are naked. We are vulnerable. We're going to enjoy the not knowing. And uh, that's why I say these are two types of different theatre. And so quite often people, I used to say, you know, does anyone improvise? And they go, yeah, yeah, when things go wrong. As if you haven't prepared properly. So I say to you, work out what you need to prepare. Do that and be prepared to let it go. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you for joining me. We have a returning guest today. He joined me along with another guest, John Creamer, back in August 2022, when we talked about how improvisational skills can help you build professional relationships. And he's got a new book coming out in June of this year. So we're going to chat a little bit more about that book. The book is called In the Moment, and we will dig into that in just a moment. But he is a former president of the famous Cambridge Footlights sketch troupe uh, and a founding member of the brilliant and Europe's leading improvisational troupe, the Comedy Store Players. You might have seen him on film in the Austin Powers movies, and he's been on television and radio. So a familiar face, certainly to me. I've I've pleasure of calling him a friend. I've seen him in action many times, and I'm delighted to welcome him back onto the Connected Leadership Podcast to talk about the power of being in the moment. Welcome back to the podcast, Neil Malarkey. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you again. We don't often have returning guests, so you are honoured. But when I saw you had another book coming out, and I know how relevant your stuff is, I just really like taking that sideways look at professional relationships that you bring to the table. I thought, let's do that. So let, let's start with a bit of a recap. Not everyone listening will have heard our last discussion last year, although hopefully after this conversation, they'll go back and dig that out as well. But you talked in that discussion about the importance of being in the moment. So for the benefit of those catching up, can you explain that concept? What does it mean? And how important is it in the improvisation world that you inhabit? Yeah, so I do improv theatre. So that's where the audience gives suggestions to the actors and then we act it out there and then. So being in the moment means you can't have a script in your head. You've got to listen to what the other person says. You've got to co-create. You've got to be really with them and hear them and see them. And in the moment is the title of the book. But I also sort of noticed sometimes people think you mean living for the moment as if you don't care about the future, the past. In the moment means sort of calming that inner voice, being present, truly present with another person or indeed sometimes on your own. But there's lots going on in your brain, lots of things. But in improv, we actually still those inner voices. We haven't got a plan. All we know is that we're going to trust the other person and the process. When the audience gives a suggestion, we'll create a scene. And if you've never seen that, you would like me. Before I was in a show, I'd never seen one. <laughs> and Mike Myers of Shrek and Austin Powers taught me this stuff. And we did it. And I'm still doing it with the Comedy Store Players. 
And it sounds impossible. Give a suggestion and then create a scene and story. But actually, it all started with a social worker in Chicago in the 20s, the 1920s, helping children who were a bit shy, didn't want to speak up. Maybe they were not native speakers. And she created some exercises. And it was her son who, by 1959, created Second City Theatre Company, who create theatre in the moment. And that's what's different from watching scripted theatre or whatever. You actually have to be present. And rule one of that is to listen and listen to the other person, sometimes even listen to the ideas you didn't expect to come into your own head. So that's what in the moment means for me. And people love that idea, I know, because it means kind of being present and stuff. Others say, hey, but I can't cope. I need to plan. I need to work out things at a time. And I'm saying, yeah, there are some times you'll need to plan ahead. So, for example, Andy I sent him a copy of my book. He's written a few questions. He knows if I completely fluff, he's got something to talk about. He knows that he can edit this and so forth. So there are some things you prepare and some things you're in the moment with. And that is kind of what the thesis of the book is. You've got to know, is this a moment for preparation, for knowing what I'm going to do? Is it a moment for actually kind of knowing that I've got to step back from my own agenda and be present with that person? And whatever I've thought ahead of time, whatever agenda I have, I need to be with that person and see and hear them and be seen and heard myself. And and it's interesting you say that because sometimes I think not just a lot of the time being in the moment could be more powerful than being prepared. So yes, I do prepare questions for the podcast, but I always say to the guests and regular listeners would have heard me talk about this. I don't ask the questions I've prepared because the conversation takes us in a different direction. And if I can reference one of your colleagues in the comedy store players, Paul Merton, and, and UK listeners will almost certainly know Paul Merton, is a very, very well-known British comedian and panel show guest. Paul Merton's a regular with the comedy store players. I have seen Paul Merton several times with the players and I've seen Paul Merton do his own prepared scripted show. And for me, there's no competition. He is phenomenal as an improvisational comedian. The scripted show for me didn't work. So for me, Paul Merton is better in the moment. So I think that how do you find when those times are? How do you find out when it is better to be scripted, when it is better to be in the moment, and when to switch? Well, it almost happens minute by minute, doesn't it? So I talk a lot about leadership. And a leader needs to have a sense of where we're going, have an agenda for the meeting, have a thought, how am I going to cope with the client negotiation strategy? There's plenty you can prepare. But if you're foolish enough to ignore the reality, the changing reality, then you're going to miss out. And so that's what I say to people who are leaders, kind of you've got to be nimble enough to know when your brain needs to be in the moment. Oh, here's an opportunity with a client, with a team member, with a peer, or to go to places we didn't know. And there are times when you don't want to turn up for a presentation or a meeting with nothing planned. And so you've kind of almost by minute by minute, as I say, you've got to work out, is this a moment to say something I've thought before? Is this a moment to go, oh, I've got to question what I thought before. I've got to think about what's really going on here. And you mentioned, Paul, there are plenty of great actors and stand-ups who can't cope with what we do. They're absolutely terrified. We're always saying to people, come and play with us. It's okay. It doesn't matter if you make a mistake. And they're going, but I don't want to make a mistake. And we're saying, (laughs) a mistake is the best thing. If you smile and keep breathing, the audience loves you. And you know this, Andy, it's a different experience watching a brilliantly crafted show versus 
an improvised show where you know the audience has given the suggestion it'll never be done again tonight's special and so i'm trying to get people to think about take advantage of both those times you can create a brilliant speech that'll get the troops going tell wonderful stories that gets them thinking about the future and then you've also got to think about the conversations those moments when perhaps something went wrong how do we cope with that or nimble enough to notice when there's an opportunity in a conversation where, oh, I've got my plan, but actually this is a richer vein. And the brain, actually, these are not the same brain movements. <laughs> I'd love to do an MRI scan of when I'm improvising, because I think um, it'll be crazy. They, they've done it with jazz musicians and who are creating in the moment jazz and their brain, part of their brain lights up or, or actually stills, I should say, the, the one about volition, i.e. I know what I'm doing. And the other one is I care what people think. And of course, in many walks of life, you've got to know what you're doing and you've got to care what people think. But actually, there are times when if you leap into that, that area of not knowing, you could create something wonderful, a creative idea, creative connection. And it's taking that little bit of a risk just to know when to, to listen to your inner voice telling you, I know what I've thought before. Here's a great story I've prepared. And oh, stepping into the not knowing and be comfortable. And that's what I say to leaders. Are you comfortable sometimes with not knowing? How is it to feel when you're not right? And your job is less to know the answer, but more to curate the questions. There's another brilliant book on this topic called Not Knowing by Stephen D'Souza. It's part of a trilogy that I highly recommend. And, and it is something to embrace and, and something to really, really be focused on it is being open to not knowing. But but we're scared of that, aren't we? I mean, one of the questions I prepared in advance, I'm going to change it slightly. One of the questions was, does fear stop us from being in the moment? And, and I believe that's probably one of the biggest factors. I also wonder whether not thinking about being in the moment, being so focused on preparation, so focused on our agenda and being ready for whatever comes our way prevents us from being in the moment as well. So is it those two things that stop us being in the moment? Are there yeah. other factors and how do we overcome them? Well, I think fear is definitely it because look at school. School is, you've got to know the answer. Listen, know the answer. Don't copy. Improv is, we don't know the answer. Copy from the person next to you. Do what she's doing, but more. If they say you're a chicken, be a chicken. So it's all about collaboration and enjoying the not knowing. I don't know where it's going to take us, but I know we'll go there together. So that's what so many employers say. People come out of education and they're not quite prepared to roll with the flow, to riff. And that means sometimes not knowing and kind of admitting you don't know. But actually in that not knowing, you could find something new and wonderful. I'm reminded of what you just said then is people might know the phrase winging it, winging it. And that's what they think I do. But actually, in the theatre, we have the wings, the, the, the bit at the side of the stage. And this is an old-fashioned theatre term. The winging it person is in the wings, trying to learn the lines at the last minute or, or putting their head in the wings, asking the stage manager, what's the script? What's the script? So they're in a state of fear because they know they should have learned the lines. There's only one version of the script and they haven't done it. The other people have. And all they're doing is it's a state of panic. I, I should have learned the lines. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Whereas improv, we go, there is no script. We are here. We are naked. We are vulnerable. We're going to enjoy the not knowing. And uh, that's why I say these are two types of different theatre. And so quite often people, I used to say, you know, does anyone improvise? And they go, yeah, yeah, when things go wrong, <laughs> as if you haven't prepared properly. So I say to you, work out what you need to prepare, do that and be prepared to let it go. 
in a pitch, for example, people often say we had it prepared, but then we heard what they were saying. We didn't talk about what we expected to talk about. We didn't use all our slides. And that's great. <laughs> and there are so many times people will say, you know, one time one consultant firm said, we said to the client, we're going to talk about this. The client said, I don't want to talk about that. And they said, well, that's what we prepared. That's what we'll talk about. <laughs> and the client got up and walked out. Yeah. And I think that's a classic story of, yes, prepare, then treat what the other person says. The client gave an offer. An offer was, I want to talk, but not about that. So, well, what do you want to talk about? So, that's the kind of improv ethos is yes. And we treat what the person says as an offer. That's not what I expected, or maybe it is, but then I take what you say, not in the way you expect it, but it says this kind of give and take and riffing with each other. And it's quite tiring. Quite honestly, I come off stage and I'm exhausted at my age of 93. I need to go down and have a lie down. When we started in my twenties, we'd go out drinking and have a meal and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's demanding. I don't want to do it all the time. I want to have some organized things, some structured things in my life so that when I need to be improvising, I'm at the top of my game. I'm really listening. And certainly coaching should be a little bit improvised. What's the client giving me? Selling is improvised. You know, maybe I came in with what I think they wanted. They tell me something else. So I've got to be nimble and adapt. And certainly networking, any kind of conversation where you're trying to create rapport, you've got to be prepared to let go of your agenda. You may be clever enough to think, oh, it's a bit quiet. I'll tell a story. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if you found a story that connected with what they've just said? Finding commonality and even saying, oh, I know nothing about that. Tell me what makes you excited. So kind of thinking what makes me excited? What could they tell me about what makes them excited? You're sharing a lot of the things that are close to my heart in terms of what I do, letting go of your own agenda, creating stuff that will land with, resonate with the person you're talking to. You talk about being naked on stage, you know, metaphorically rather than <laughs> physically. That would be a different kind of improv, I guess. But you're not because you've been practicing this for a long time. So you have the skills, you have the knowledge, you know when a suggestion comes in, so you're certainly at the top of the game in terms of improv. You are with one of the most famous and best troops in the world for improv, which means you're skilled at it. And the, the analogy I'm making there is you use examples of being in front of a client, for example, or let's say you're in front of a team member who has a challenge or a question, or you're in a meeting. It's about your expertise. It's about the area you know about. So it's not as if you're going into a room where you're talking about things you know nothing about. It's about letting go of the agenda and trusting yourself that you can find the answer within yourself, isn't it? Well, yes. First of all, I teach people improv. Anyone can do it once they let go. On the other hand, when I'm working with people who are look up for promotion or they're thinking about their personal impact and they're fearful of a question, I'm saying, well, actually, you know quite a lot here. Apparently, somebody's given you the promotion. Some, you've got a job title. It looks like you know something about something. So it's about managing your state, actually, saying, well, oh, I may not know the answer to this, but if I took a breath and thought about what the person's just said, what's the gift they've given me, the offer? They've talked about X or Y. Actually, I don't know exactly X or Y, but I knew something adjacent to it. I haven't found that situation, but I can talk about something similar. And actually, it's almost accessing the stuff that's unconscious that you didn't even know you knew so easily. As you say, they're experts in their field. They may not know the answer to this question, but actually pause a minute. And quite often the client doesn't know, doesn't want to know the answer. They want to know that you're prepared to play and riff. 
think and be their trusted partner, their thought partner, their trusted advisor. And you're absolutely right. Most of it is fear. It's kind of, I don't know the answer to that particular question. And they can think of nothing. Or quite often happens, I think it's, it's sometimes the opposite, which is I could say 12 different things here. Which one do I say? And I say, well, first of all, what did they say? Is anything they've said related to one of the th- pictures you've got in your head? Say that. And almost sometimes it's as simple as take a second and breathe. Ah, your, your brain needs oxygen. You can take a moment. Feels like forever from your end. The other people are just thinking, oh, they have gravitas. And that's the point is how do I, we access that through the fear you mentioned earlier? I'm fearful. I don't know the answer. I'm going to be caught out. But generally, what is it? that the person's asking. Can I use that as a springboard? And if I don't know the answer, say it. The worst thing is to is to waffle, to wing it, is to go waffle, waffle. There's a sign above your head saying, I've got no idea what you're saying. Uh, when you could have just asked a follow-up question or I don't know that situation, but here's one that's kind of similar. So short turd tanky is, a, is another one in improv. It's kind of say a little bit, wait, step back, see what are they saying? Dip in, dip back. And it's that feeling your way. And I wonder if you actually, as an improvisational comedian, you find it easier to build engagement and connection with your audiences because you're almost in it together and they know that you don't know the answer and it's not rehearsed compared to a brilliantly crafted, scripted comedian who's got to find that connection because they're a performer, a pure performer in that sense. There's more of a, a fourth wall between them and the audience. And taking that into the workplace, you know, I do a lot of speaking and writing about vulnerability. I talk about how if we remove that mask of perfection, we connect on a human level much more. Well, I don't think anyone's perfect. And are we fearful of showing our imperfections? Now, I know my wife loves me, including my imperfections. We have a laugh about how stupid I am and how I can't do anything with my hands at all. And that's fine. I take out the bin. She's got the toolbox. So in a way, why should we fear our imperfections? Because the vulnerability, and this is where, you know, Brene Brown has written about this, is vulnerability can be the source of creativity, the source of leadership. It doesn't mean you go in as a leader and say, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm rubbish. I'm terrible. You kind of go, there are times I didn't know the answer. There are times I've got to step in and and guide you. But the mask of perfection, and, and I think it's almost, you know, imposter syndrome, which was all of us are imposters. Well, basically children who've grown up and got a bit fatter and older and are pretending to be grown ups. And that's how I feel it is. And so forgive yourself for not knowing everything. And actually the improv mindset, you get over the hump of enjoying not knowing. Oh, let's find out together. And that's quite a Zen moment for many people, I suppose, whose job is to know the answer. Their job is to have done all the homework and be able to answer any question. And of course, a lawyer said to me recently, she said, after 15 years of doing this, I've realized it's not the quality of the advice, it's the quality of the relationship. And that's a lawyer. That's a lawyer. It's, you know, that's very technical, rigid stuff, you might think. But a lot of the law is interpretation, particular circumstances, really hearing what your client wants. They might say, I need the answer. That actually, what they want is some background. They might want a yes or no. They might want some some of the possibilities. And so, yes, vulnerable is great, but I can say that. You can say that, Andy. But that's hard, I think, if you're 20-something or if you're in an environment where so-called being wrong looks bad. That's why I always say to leaders, and often leaders say to me, I want them 
give me ideas because I'm the old story. <laughs> so try it out. Have we got this environment in our organizations that says we could try stuff out? We could be vulnerable because from that could come innovation, certainly connection, relational connection with people. Well, that's something we're going to hopefully explore on a future podcast. I've just finished a program for leaders in international bank about creating a culture where people feel comfortable being vulnerable and speaking up. And one of the things I learned from creating that program, and there's an excellent book by Megan Wrights, is one of the co-authors called Speak Up. And hopefully I'm going to get Megan to come onto the podcast. One of the things I hadn't thought about before, it's obvious when you think about it, but I hadn't thought about before that came out strongly for me in preparing for the program was that it's one thing for a leader to say, I want you to be open and honest and vulnerable with me. It's another for someone to trust that. And creating that culture where we we create that space for people to feel they are able to overcome. And, and I guess this can lead to quite an interesting question I hadn't thought of before. But one of the things that came from that is there's so much that can have happened in someone's previous life. You know, I was working with a team this week where someone said, I come from a culture where you don't speak up, where it was very hierarchical, where you cannot go beyond your immediate line manager for information and ideas and support. And, and the the client I'm working with now, they're saying, you know, talk to anyone and she can't do it because that's her background. Could be someone's family background holding them up. So does improv help people break down that conditioning to put them in a better place in order to show up in the moment in other places? Yes. The first thing is to listen. Listen, try and use what the other person said. Listen, accept the offer. That's the improv mindset. But there's a whole bunch of stuff I've written down as you were talking there. First of all, and this is what I tell to leaders, I have a chapter on leadership in my book. You don't know the person's experience, previous experience of leader. They will put you into that mold, whether you like it or not. It's up to you to find out what it is and to disrupt that or change it or sometimes fit it. If that, you know, Sometimes they might just need to be told what to do. You talked about Megan Wright wonderfully. She co-writes with John Higgins, who was my first sponsor at Ashridge yeah. Business School 20 plus years ago. And I sort of rang him and said, Can, I think improv is, I heard him on the radio for, he said, theatres where moments psychological, emotional and rational come together. And I said, can I do improv? And he said, yes, come and do it. And he's become a great supporter. And little did I know that when I started, I thought improv was just, let's listen better. <laughs> that was, I thought it was, that was it. And there's a whole load of models about leaders as working with uncertainty, adaptive leadership, dealing with questions where we don't know the answer. The leader's role is to help find the question rather than know the answer. But I think there's something about role modeling. That's the main thing. Role modeling. That person you talked about, it's hard for them to disrupt that image. It could be based on a parent. It could be based on a leader or any number of leaders. And that's hard to shift that unless you as a leader start to, to role model how it is to be vulnerable. And that's that's an interesting story because Adam Kingle has just written a book called Sparking Success, Adam Kingle with an L, uh, Sparking Success. And he interviewed a lot of people about creativity. And he talked to the people who made Friends, Friends, the sitcom. And he said, sometimes the boss, the head writer, would deliberately round the table, throw in a weird, bad idea <laughs> so that it allowed others to throw in off-kilter, left-field ideas. And so often, and we know this, we don't believe what people say. We believe what they do. How many mission statements, 
and websites say, we believe in encouraging risk and failure, yada, yada. And then if you do it, you're in trouble. If the leader models that kind of trusted behavior, vulnerability, you know that people will then start to believe it. So many times I'll do a session and people mutter to me afterwards, yeah, this is great, but you know, we can do it in our team, but there's another team or the boss doesn't believe it. And so I've seen some inspiring leaders, some top, top CEOs, and they are asking for it. They're saying, let's be original. And it's almost my job sometimes is to give permission as an outsider saying, he really means it. She she does want you to do this. And sometimes there may be echelons below that going, well, not in this bit. <laughs> and of course, that's why I say again to people, there are moments for improv and there are moments for You've got to be rigorous. You've got to be ethical, financially sound, etc. You've got to keep it within legal limits. But within the areas of small experiments, trying out stuff, even if it's just where do we have our meetings, even if it's having shorter meetings, even if it's a new coffee machine or how meetings are run, why does the leader have to run the meeting? Just tiny experiments that can be moments that could have pretty profound effects that you might not expect. If you're in a leadership position and would like to review your own professional relationship strategy, you may be interested in booking a 15-minute call with Andy. Please visit andylapata.com forward slash discovery to find out more. The point you made about role modeling, I think is so important. When I ran that program on creating the right environment for speaking up, we went through stages from your own vulnerability as a leader through to how you can create a space for people to be more vulnerable with you individually and then the corporate culture. And in one of the sessions, I asked people, what's their first step going to be in terms of enabling people to be more vulnerable with them? And as we did it as an online poll, it was a, it was a virtual session. And as I went through the responses, most people said, um, "Tell them they can be vulnerable with me." It was something along those lines, pretty much. And I went through the first two or three pages of responses, and it was all about invite people to be vulnerable and tell people that they can open up. And it was only on about the third or fourth page that someone said, "Be vulnerable myself." And it is that role modeling. This is so important for leaders to understand that you can be in the moment. That You know, you referenced it earlier. You don't have to script the whole speech. You can respond to what's happening in the room. Let, let's explore more what you were saying about meetings. You said the leader doesn't have to lead the meetings. How can we create better meetings which allow people to be in the moment? I love your example of throwing in some dodgy ideas. I also think it's quite a good idea to throw in those, not just to invite other people to do so, but also to see if they're listening and if they're willing to challenge <laughs> you, if they're willing to challenge as well. But, yeah, give us some more ideas about using improv techniques and in the moment techniques to create better meetings yeah i've got a whole chapter about meetings and i say there's again this binary thing of make sure there's an agenda make sure it's organized and make sure it finishes on time organize that <laughs> but then be clear what kind of meeting is it is it a meeting to get stuff done in which case heads down few options assign actions or is it a meeting for chatting, chatting, checking in, opening up things? And this is where so often meetings are a bit of both. Or I come to the meeting thinking it's going to be that and you thinking it's going to be this. And I think it's really important that leaders do role model allowing discussion. Just things like 
in a virtual meeting, get everyone to say something fairly early on. Even if it's just their name, I get people to say, where are you? Put it in the chat. Are you wearing slippers? Anything like that kind of humanizes it, makes it a bit of fun. Allow meetings to be a bit of fun. Five minutes of chat and human human, human stuff. Uh, science says actually that you get the task done better if you've had that little bit of preamble. Yeah. But again, don't let the meeting overrun. Shorter meetings, really good to not have the leader run the meeting because she or he will run it in a certain way. Let somebody else run it or virtual and have people do little bits because we get bored, don't we? This is, again, a lot of research says, think about five-minute episodes for a virtual meeting, five minutes of this, five minutes of that, a new slide, a different voice, maybe something in chat, just varying the pace, the tone, the interaction. And be clear what meetings are for. So that's don't just make people come into the office because they have to, because you prefer to be in the office. What are they coming for? They're going to be creative and collaborative in the office, but maybe they go home and that's where they can get the sort of stuff done that needs just focusing. But use improv techniques, which, and again, this thing, listening. Yes, and is our thing. Listen, accept, uh, and try and pick up threads that people may have said. There may have been a brilliant idea in the meeting, got lost, or somebody half formed an idea, and that could be the real breakthrough. And sometimes you go with that, and that's where the improv ethos is. We, we don't quite know where we're going, but we feel we might end up somewhere. And even as you've seen improv, Andy, sometimes the sketches are not great or they start off not great. <laughs> and what you thought was going to be the idea becomes jettisoned. Something else comes in. Even sometimes a mistake brings the whole meaning of the scene to the fore. Oh, it's about that. And there is a book called Say Yes to the Mess by Frank Barrett, who's a jazz musician and professor of organizational behavior, which is as a leader, sometimes you want to say, okay, this is where we're heading, but sometimes it's got to be a bit, mm, not sure, let's try things out, maybe some blind alleys, this, that, and he calls it Say Yes to the Mess. And uh, my friends at Ashridge, where John Higgins used to be, that's where I met him, they talk about a minimal structure, maximum autonomy, i.e. just enough structure so it doesn't feel that it's you're dragooned, but the room for manoeuvre. And the thing is, each of us has our own feeling of structure. How much do I want to be organized? How much do I not want to be? And I always say cooking, cooking. Who loves just looking in the fridge, seeing what's happening? Some people love that. Others like to organize all the ingredients, get them bought a week in advance, and just notice how and when you feel you want to be structured versus not so structured. And that's, again, why um, I've called the book In the Moment, but also a moment can be a year. It can be six months when you're thinking, what do I do next? Your thoughts and your interactions have to be appropriate to the moment. If the building's on fire, the moment says, get out through that door now. No democracy, no vulnerability, get on with it. If it's where are we going in the next three years, how you feel your career is, what's upset you, what have you noticed about how others interact with you? That's a much more open discussion requires a quiet vulnerability. A lot of what you've just said really complements last week's podcast interview. I talked to Catherine Stothart about different personality styles. And, you know, what you've just said really brings to mind how if you are a leader and you're bringing in more of this in-the-moment approach to the work that you do, you need to know who's on your team. And you need to know that some people are going to 
absolutely revel in that environment. Others are going to be missing the structure and they're going to be much more uncomfortable. But obviously, where you're coming from, and I would tend to agree with you, it's going to benefit the team and the organization as a whole if you can create more in-the-moment thinking. So how do you take those people with you who are more structured, who are who need more borders, who do need more of an agenda and feel uncomfortable when they don't have it? Well, from my experience, having done this for 25 years, I've done impro scenes with people from all over the world, all shapes and sizes, ages, occupations, and I've never found somebody who can't do it. Uh, you you guide them gently. You give them the structures. You give them some left brain, which is yes and, for example. Uh, what's the offer? Take that, add a little bit to it, throw it back to me. That's a simple left brain structure that might lead to right brain creativity. So acknowledging people's comfort with structure versus not structure. But you know what? I've met all sorts of people in the creative industry who are very structured. I've met so-called dull people in business who, when you ask, what do you do outside work? Well, I do this. I run a kid's football team. I do painting. I go sailing. Oh, right. So you are totally creative. Bring some of that to what you do at work. And so it's gentle, gentle, again, role modeling, but give them enough feeling of it's okay. This is a moment when we are going to go to places we didn't expect. And the moment when we gets to something more real or decide or implement is coming. Very simple metaphor, which is I'm keen on mentioning is the idea of divergent thinking. So you're opening up the possibilities versus convergent. Convergent thinking is what's the answer? How are we going to get from A to B? There's only one answer, maybe. Uh, divergent is, should we even be going? Should we start at A? Is B where we should end up? Or should we come back to A? It's kind of opening up the question. And not everyone's comfortable too long in that space. I'm not either. Anyone who's been on holiday with me, I, I want to know where my dinner is. I want to, you know, what are we doing tomorrow? On the other hand, when we're in the conversation with somebody I've never met, I can go anywhere. So it's kind of, and that's my thesis of the book. We can't be in the moment, improv, let's just see what happens all the time. But when we need to be, let's find a few Microstructures creating the atmosphere of trust when we will find new ways and also look at the moments when we shouldn't be that. Because I always say to people, look, the comedy store players, every Sunday we do a show. It's the same. Starts at 7.30, finishes at 9.30, six people. It's the same location. Well, yes, we've got some structure. This comedy store does the drinks and the insurance and the security and the tickets. We even play the same games, although we've muddled them up a bit lately. We know who's going to be on. There's plenty of structure there. But then we hit the stage. The audience gives suggestions and ah, we're in the moment. We're playing the game and the audience is playing with us. Then we go home and <laughs> we, a relatively structured life. I get up next morning, get my children breakfast. So it's kind of allowing us to play and feeling comfortable that the stakes are not too high. Most people would find what I'm doing terrifying. I would find running a financial services company terrifying. I would find studying for architectural exams terrifying. I would find working in a shop terrifying in case I fall over and <laughs> drop the money or break the glass or something. So I found a thing that suits me. All I'm saying is to everyone else, try and find on the edge those moments when you want to play a little bit more. You've touched on 
the rules of improv a bit, which again fall into to part of that structure. You had a particularly refreshing acronym for the rules in the book, <laughs> and then you changed it. So I thought I'm still going to use that pun, but it was Lager. It's now Laser. But I think it, you've touched on two or three of the, the rules. I think it's worthwhile having you outline them for us because, as you point out in the book, they're your rules for improvisation, but they work in any professional environment as well. Yes, I've just noticed talking of structure. Yeah. So, so Largo used to be my acronym. I kind of had this idea many years ago. Rule one of improv is always listen, accept, accept the offer, accept what's going on. Then G was for, give an offer based on what you heard. Try and build up the other person's idea. Then it was E for explore assumptions. Oh, hang on a minute. I thought I was a policeman. Turns out I'm somebody pretending to be a policeman. Uh, turns out I thought we always do it this way. Oh, no, I don't have to do it that way. The given paradigm, oh, we've got newer possibilities. We don't have to do it in person. We could do it virtually. My phone could do more things than I than can take a man to the moon. So listen, accept, give, explore assumptions, your assumptions about yourself, your assumptions about the other person, their assumptions about you. You're an accountant. They must think you're this or that. Actually, no, you're not. You're a whole bunch of other things. And then R is, I used to say, recycle recycle older offers. It's a great thing when you're pitching, lay out your terms or ideas, have a Q&A, and then at the end, kind of bring back stuff they've said, what they want, what matters to them. Recycle. Then I was having a drink with our CEO once, and I said, well, what we say in improv is reincorporate. <laughs> and he said, oh, use that. Sounds good. Reincorporate, for those who might not think it's a regular term of general language, it's in American sitcoms, they call it a callback. That tiny moment, that object, that person, that idea, that word comes back, then comes back and finally it's the whole reason that we win or fail. Um, oh, there we are. That's somebody telling me my next thing. Um, so R for reincorporate. It's a lovely way of just saying, I'm not just listening to what you're saying now. I remember, I care. So I remember what you said last week. I remember what you said earlier in the meeting. And it could be a professional idea where the idea got lost, then we can bring it back. Or oh, if we loop back to where we were, that could help. It's also just a great way of helping people create poor. If somebody said they like skiing, throw in every now and again a bit of a reference to the nursery slopes or something. Somebody says they like this, they've got children, they've been on holiday, they've studied this. Just throw it back in every now and again. They go, oh, they've listened to me. And all you're doing is recycling an offer they gave you. And it creates wonderful rapport. It means you're not short of something to say. And it, it creates a smile. Quite often, you can get people to smile just by bringing back something they said earlier in a new environment, talking about skiing, and now they're talking about double-entry bookkeeping. And it's completely ethical and authentic because people say to me, oh, jokes, you know, not everyone likes jokes. I don't know any jokes. I can't remember any jokes at all. But I can remember what somebody said to me a few minutes ago because I'm mentally putting it in my whatever, to say, oh, that I'll plant that in my in my head. And if I throw it back every now and again, they'll kind of open up and we can have a smile. And actually, in a creative sense, we might come with a whole new idea where we've actually gone back to an old idea, but reframed it in the current uh, environment. It, it, and it, I'll just, I called it lager. I've changed it to laser, by the way, because yeah. I don't, I used to give people a beer. Mat. I call it laser now. So you listen, accept, and then send out an offer, send back the offer because it, to, to show you've heard. So you're sending an offer to build up their idea. And also because I studied physics A-level, I remember that light can be both a particle 
and a wave. And laser is photons. But isn't it because individuals, that sort of people can be both an individual and a team member. Yeah. We can be a particle, a photon, but also a wave of light. And that to me is the ultimate human destiny. I'm who I am, but I love being part of a community, a family, a team, an organization, a group. And that is where I think people find the greatest fulfillment. I am who I am, an individual, but I'm also part of something bigger than myself. The point you made about recalling back to to things that have been said earlier in the conversation, comedy, it's a nested loop. I mean, Billy Connolly is the oh, yes. master. Yes, absolute yes. master of it. I, I recently saw Dave Gorman on his latest tour, and if you ever get the chance to see Dave Gorman, the guy is just brilliant at planting a seed as a throwaway line and then making it a punchline of a joke an hour later. And it creates, as you said, amazing rapport because you're sharing that joke. You're sharing that experience of recognizing something you, you talked about earlier and it works so well. So and I know I'm told Darrow Breen does it improvised yeah, he does <laughs> you know, it with well. what the audience give him. Amazing skill. Amazing to be able to do that. So I know you've got your meeting. I've got one last question. You talk in the book about serendipity. So simple question. Are people who live in the moment generally luckier? <laughs> There's actually a guy, he's called Richard Wiseman from the University of Hertfordshire, who looked at people who are lucky or unlucky. And there's a bit of science of if you think you're unlucky, you, you tend to spot things that <laughs> were unlucky about you. So I start saying, look for opportunities, first of all, to tell people how great they were. And you start noticing how great people are if you're consciously thinking that. So positive gossip is something that I borrowed from Solutions Focus. But serendipity to me is you're looking for opportunities you are tuned. You're not lucky, but you're you're thinking, oh, anything could be useful. So there's a book by uh, a guy called Rob Poynton, and I talked about improv, uh, that the idea of the offer. He's written a book called Everything is an Offer. Everything's an Offer. There's always something we can find. Oh, I can use that to move forward, to create connection or find a new creative idea or an application of something I didn't expect. So serendipity is an attuned mind. I would say, I don't know. I mean, I do know I'm lucky that if I see something happen, I think, oh, that's good. Well, let's try that. Or something doesn't happen. I think, oh, that's fine. Because of that door closing, I'll find an open door here. But I know some improvisers who are not half full glass type people. I know some people who are in very kind of, you know, conventional jobs who are wonderfully open to possibility. So I would say, Use the improv technique to be thinking about things that could be an opportunity. So actually, my friends are on your feet that Rob Poynton was in, a group called On Your Feet, and they say they send people a Christmas card every year. And one time it was just notice more, notice more. If you're looking for offers in life, and it could be the trees, it could be what people say, it could be what's changing in consumer behavior, it could be changes in technology. Oh, notice that. How can I do that? What can I borrow from the world of that? that over there in my world. So I would say probably yes to your question, which is we're noticing possibilities. We're seeing setbacks as not a block, but an offer in disguise. I love it. What a great note to finish on. Neil, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much. It's it's lovely to see you. I want to see you in real life soon. Are you going to come yeah. to Comedy Store soon? Yeah, I am. I've actually been saying recently I haven't been for ages and I need to sort the trip out. So expect to see me on a Sunday very soon because you've stopped doing the Wednesdays, haven't you? Just Sundays, ComedyStorePlayers.com. Yeah. And I recommend it to anyone. I think it's an absolutely fantastic night out. Neil, thank you so much. 
So thank you to Neil for joining me. And yeah, I really encourage you to get along to the Comedy Store players. Find out where you can learn improv as well. Neil mentioned that he teaches it. I spoke to a friend recently who was telling me unprompted about how she's recently taken up improv and absolutely loves it. And it's a great way to just to sharpen that ability to be in the moment. You've got a huge reading list from this podcast because I've mentioned a couple of books. Neil's mentioned a ton of them. But Start Within the Moment by Neil Malarkey. I think that's your starting point. Comes out in June. It's been great to have Neil back on the programme and I will see you next week for another edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.